Okay, well we're carrying on in our journey through Psalm 119 and we've come as far as verse 57. Um, we'll give a quick recap in a second, but let's, before we do that, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to the Lord. Well, Father, we thank you once again, Lord, as we always do for your word. It is living, it is powerful, it changes us, it transforms our thinking. Father, it helps to see things from your perspective and not just our own. Lord, your word is like a mirror that reflects our own lives. And Father, as we look into your word, we see ourselves as we really truly are, not as the facade that sometimes we try and put there, the impression, the image that sometimes we portray to others, Lord. Your word shows us how we really are. And yet, Lord, your word also shows us our Savior. It shows us the grace that is to be found in him, Lord, that there is a way that we can be delivered, forgiven, cleansed, washed totally, thoroughly clean. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, continue to teach us this morning. Father, I pray that you convict us and speak to our hearts, Lord, that we would not leave here just as we came in. Father, if there are things in our lives that are not right, then, Lord, help us to surrender them to you. And, Lord, we know that you can transform and change us. Lord, we pray you do that work of sanctification in us. Lord, it's just as, as the psalmist said, Lord, to see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and lead us in the way of everlasting. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we've been going through Psalm 119, I've been trying to paint this picture, in a sense, of a journey. That it's almost as if we're, we're climbing up a, a hill, a mountain, you know, and the whole of this has come about from that realization of our need for God, our need for God in our lives, our need to walk in His way and His path. And I was just kind of adding to some of the notes during this week, and it reminded me of a, a situation a few years ago. We went to North Wales, and uh, myself and some of the family climbed Snowdon uh, together, and it was a great experience. I remember distinctly getting to a point in that that climb. The first part's all right, it's nice and you know just a gentle incline, and it kind of gets steep in a few places. And then we got to this kind of long, rocky path that goes up, and your legs are burning by this point. Uh, and I mean, we had there was probably like a seventy-year-old lady came running past us, and we just felt very humiliated. And there was people that were coming past us on bikes, so you know, but. Yeah, me and my climbing companions were not necessarily the fittest of people, um, but we were determined to do this. And climbing up this this path, it was tough. It was really tough on the legs. But we got to the top, and there was this kind of plateau where everything just leveled out. And so we just obviously stopped, and we had a break there for a while, and we looked around. And it is incredible. You look around, and there's things you can see from that altitude that you couldn't have seen from the ground. There was lakes, mountain lakes, that you had no idea were there. Uh, you know, the cars down on the road, there were just little dots that were so far away. Uh, and you could just see this incredible uh, panorama looking around us, all the, the hills and mountains around North Wales. Uh, and you could see right out as far as the sea. It was a relatively clear day to start with. You know, but then that kind of realization dawned that we're only kind of halfway. There was still a lot more climbing to do. Well, I, I share that with you because Psalm 119 is a little bit like that. As I've said already a number of times, I, I feel in going through studying this that those eight verses that begin the psalm are very much a setting the scene and you know really stating the way it should be. And then we get into verse nine onwards, and that's really when we we set out just in the foothills, starting to move forward. And you start to get the impression that the psalmist is struggling with the flesh life. 
You know, the the reality is most Christians pretend everything's fine and we've got it all sorted. That we're all living wonderfully righteous lives and we all get up at four o'clock in the morning and spend an hour in Bible study and then two hours in prayer. It doesn't happen. What one stat I read or heard the other day: the average Christian prays for just four minutes a day. You know, now knowing that some Christians do pray for more than that, it means that some Christians are praying less than that and reading the Bible. You know, it's something we should do, but is it something we do do? And, you know, it's, even with all of those things, if you are praying, if you are reading the Bible, that doesn't mean you're immune from temptation and struggles and the pressures that the world throws upon us that impact us in so many ways. Um, and I, I think there needs to be a real openness within our lives as Christians, particularly within a fellowship of believers. You know, and I don't for a minute advocate um, confessing our sins to each other. No, we, we have one advocate with the Father, and that's Jesus. That's the, the only one who we confess our sins to. But it is good that we share with each other, as James highlights, we should confess our faults. You know, if we're struggling, we should be honest enough to go to someone and say, you know what, I am struggling. You don't have to give the specifics or the details, and sometimes it's probably better that you don't. But just so somebody can be praying for you. So we can lift each other up and support each other in this this work and this walk that we're we're living. And you know, the whole of the psalm really, my kind of subtitle is walking in the way because that's what it's all about. Is this is how do we live the Christian life? There's a lot of you know books and things that I found that tell us you know the the, the perfection, you know what it should be like, but it's the how to. You know, in any field that you can go to in life now, you you find a how to book on it. How to do this, how to work with computers or IT or how to, to work with whatever. There's something that will explain how to do it step by step. Well, I feel that this psalm is very much that how-to guide for us as Christians. And we go through, the psalm progresses, and yet we come then to that eight verses that we looked at last time. In fact, we looked at 16 verses last time in our study. Um, the verse 41 to 48, it's just really that 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 last leg of that rocky path getting up to that plateau. It's a struggle. But then we get to verse 49, and it's as if everything just levels out a little bit at that point. And I think, you know, it's just time for the psalmist there to to reflect. Three times in verses 49 to 56, uh, we have there, remember. First of all, it's remember, verse 49, the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. And then goes on. Uh, and then verse 52, I have remembered. And then verse 55, again, I have remembered thy name. You know, so it's kind of a, a reflective looking back in a sense of what's been accomplished. And as we concluded last week, it ends beautifully with that verse 56. This I had because I kept thy precepts. And as I said last week, it's a little bit like, you know, you watch those kind of game shows on telly and you get to a certain point and you can bank your winnings. Well, that's what I believe the psalmist does at this point. You know, everything gleaned and gained in the journey so far is now banked. That's there. It's part of his experience. It's part of the, the walk that he's had and, and been doing with the Lord. And nobody can take that away. And nobody can take it away from you and I. You know, again, I just keep encouraging you, but please read even just one verse a day and meditate on that verse and let God speak to you. And then the next day, carry on. You know, as we do that, those things you learn are lessons that will stay with you for life. Things that you'll learn and discover about God. Things that maybe you didn't understand or know before. Or things that maybe you, you did know, but just, just suddenly get a bigger, better view of. You know, just like climbing that mountain in Wales. As we were getting higher, we got such a better view of the things that are around. And some of the things were just 
you see a greater clarity, you can see the, the, the road network, the layout of where things were. But you just see just so much more from that altitude. And as we're climbing, that's what we're seeing. So now as we move into the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it's this one, hate is the uh, um, word uh, or the letter in Hebrew. Do you find it typically spelled C? It's kind of a silent C, but H E T H. Um, hate is the the pronunciation, or something along those lines. Um, and under these eight verses, it's really the climb continues. You know, we've had a kind of a brief respite. Now it's kind of that that onward climb, pressing forward as we uh, we get ready to move on. I want to read to you um, just a couple of quotes. Spurgeon says this. He says, "In this section, the psalmist seems to take firm hold upon God." You know, last week I used that analogy of kind of rock climbing. And if you were rock climbing and you got to a ledge and you paused and you had a break and you start to climb again, the first thing you're going to do before you move is make sure you get a firm hold before you start ascending any further. Well, as Spurgeon highlights in this section, the psalmist seems to take a firm hold upon God himself, appropriating him, verse 57, crying out for him, verse 58, returning to him, verse 59, um, solacing himself in him, in 61 to 62, associating with his people, in verse 63, and sighing for personal experience of his goodness, in verse 64. He says, note how the first verse of this octave is linked to the last of the former one, of which indeed it is our expanded repetition. Oh, so it is an expanded repetition. This I have because I kept thy precepts, thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. Another commentator um, from yesteryear by the name of David Dickinson uh, said this. He said, uh, in this section, David labors to confirm his faith, to comfort himself in the certainty of his regeneration. And then he goes on to list eight distinct things that he think he draws out. He said, but the first of them is choosing God for his portion. So let's just jump in and look at these verses as we go through. We're just going to take these first, or these eight verses. So picking up verse 57. Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said I would keep thy words. Again, a comment from Spurgeon. He just says, Thou art my portion, O Lord. A broken sentence. And this is interesting because he says the translators, the translators have mended it uh, by insertions. But perhaps it had been better to have left it alone. And then it would have appeared as an exclamation. My portion, O Lord. So the poet is lost in wonder why he sees that the great and glorious God is all his own. And well might he be so, for there is no possession like Jehovah himself. You know, the psalmist is already considered in the, the previous verse all that he's gained. Again, as I said a moment ago, it's that kind of like, this is now all mine. This is what I've got. Uh, and those things that he's thinking of that he talked about in the previous eight verses, you know, the promises of God, the hope that they bring, they're his now, he knows them, he's, he's holding on to them. The comfort in affliction and the renewed life that comes from God's word. The strength to endure in the midst of derision from other people. Well, the world loves to put us down and to mock us, but he speaks now of a strength that he's now got. The righteous judgments of a never-changing God. You know, and in the, the previous eight verses, that verse we were highlighted last time, I've remembered thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. You know, and what a comfort it is we think of the saints that have gone before us, that God has sustained, that God has helped them in their predicaments, that God is a just God. 
And God judged the likes of Pharaoh and those that imprisoned Daniel and led to his being put in with the lions and so on. You know, so many examples we could put out of the word of God. And we see always that God is righteous and God brings just judgment. But also, another thing he's, he's discovered is, in a sense, this newly found hatred of sin. And that's something that you will discover as you grow as a Christian, you will learn to hate sin more. It won't be something you try and do or something, it's just become something very natural. As you get closer to God, the things of this world will just lose their appeal. And things that even a few years ago, maybe you thought were okay, you look at now and you don't want anything to do with them. Another thing that comes out from that previous eight verses is that overflowing heart of praise. Just so grateful and wanting to sing, making the, the statutes of God into songs. And then really concluding with that 24-7 walking in the way, you know, even in the nighttime, thinking upon the name of the Lord. So, you know, it seems now though that his mind is drawn to the sum of all those parts. That, they're all the parts, but he draws all that together and the sum of the parts is God himself. You know, and he says, he says that you are my portion. You know, you're, you're everything that I have. You're what I've been given. And what else do we need other than God himself? You know, he's got all those individual blessings, but he's been granted an eternal abiding relationship with his creator. You know, and, and this is our creator, our sustainer, the source of life itself. You know, the world seeks its portion from all sorts of things, doesn't it? You think of people you know in the world, and they, they may look for their portion from wealth or from success, from social acceptance or the number of friends on Facebook. I don't really understand those things, but, you know, but people look for, for their portion, something to fill their life from all sorts of other things. But of course, they only serve up a half portion. You know, if you went out for a meal and you were served a half portion, you'd be very disappointed. You'd, you'd want to send it back. But that's what the world does. The world can only ever serve up half a portion at best because it can't satisfy, it can't fill us, it can't meet our needs. It it just simply can't supply the needs that we have. But God, on the other hand, what we read in Philippians 4.19, that God can supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3 says that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. You know, that's the God that we claim as our own. You know, Jesus, when he taught us to pray in Matthew's Gospel, taught us to pray by saying, Our Father. This is our God, our Father. This isn't some distant remote God that we have to address in some other way, but we address God as Abba, our Father. And the psalmist is saying this now, that, that God, you are my portion. You are what I've been given. I mean, you think of people being dished out a portion of anything. Well, we've been given God. You know, what else would we want? And then he says, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. Now, you know, what else would we want to, to do other than keep God's words when we know that he can provide everything that we need? Why would we want to look anywhere else? Reminded of, again, those words of Simon Peter, Thou hast the words of eternal life. And as he says, to whom else shall we go? What else should we do? You know, God has everything we need. He will satisfy, fulfill, and bless us in every way. Why would we want to go anywhere else to, to seek fulfillment of whatever level of nature? In John fourteen twenty three, Jesus said there, If the man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, 
and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. You see, those those things just go together, don't they? The, the psalmist here is saying, Lord, you're my portion, and I've said in my heart that I'll keep thy words. Well, as Jesus said, if we keep his words, that he will come and dwell in us, and he will be our portion. Verse 58, we carry on. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. Now, I, I just can't help but just see a, a slight humor in this. Um, because he's kind of declared that he's made God his portion. He's chosen God for himself in that sense. But then he's stated now that he will keep God's words. Look again, that verse 57. Oh Lord, I've said that I would keep thy words. I just get the impression that he's suddenly thinking about what he's just said and the enormity of saying that. In Ecclesiastes 5 verse 5 it says there, Solomon said, Better it is that thou should not vow, than thou should vow and not pay. And I just kind of get the feeling that as he speaks these words, suddenly he kind of hears what he's saying. Uh, Have you ever done that? Have you ever been either speaking to somebody else, or or in this context, speaking to God, and you've made some sort of promise, and then suddenly you've realized what you've just said. And you think, I'm in trouble now, because I'm really not sure how I'm going to do that. And I think that's where we get to. Because I think this verse is probably the one of the most uh, impassioned pleas and prayers in the whole of this psalm you know we read here not only does he plead for favor it's god's favor i mean it's really quite intense as he builds on this so he's pleading first of all for for favor i entreated thy favor not just any favor from anybody or from any situation it's god himself that he's seeking and asking for favor and then he says with my whole heart not half-heartedly, not just a little bit, this is everything I have, I'm throwing into this. And then he says, be merciful unto me. Like he throws himself at God's mercy. Because I think, again, the psalmist has come far enough to recognize that he can't do this on his own. You know, it's as if, I think, you know, for him at this point in his journey, failure is not an option. He wants God to be his portion. He wants to keep God's words. He's kind of stuck himself out on a limb and now he's going to go, Lord, help me. How do, how? How do we do this? But be merciful unto me. But then notice how he finishes verse 58, according to thy word. That, that phrase just keeps coming back through this psalm. And it's such a great thing for us to remember that in these prayers, in these pleas that he's presenting, he keeps going back to God's word. That's the basis for which we have to ask God for anything, according to his word. If God has said it in his word, then we rightly can claim it. And God will always keep and honour his word. I made a note just scribbling these things down that favour without mercy is like a fire without oxygen. You know, it's no good having just favour because without God's mercy, it means nothing. We need to have that mercy. It's as we looked very much last time of mercy in a bit more depth. It's such an important aspect of our relationship with God. And that's why we need to be so grateful and, and, and thankful that we read in his word that his mercy continues forever. Again, he just throws himself on the one thing he knows is sure, which is the promises of God. Again, according to your word. Yeah, because God always is faithful. John 6.37 just says, He that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Yeah, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and he will hear us. A man by the name of Edmund Calamy said this, he says, The word of God may be divided into three parts, into commandments, threatenings, 
and promises. And though a Christian must not neglect the commanding and threatening word, yet if he ever would make the word a channel for divine comfort, he must study the promising word. For the promises are a Christian's magna carta for heaven. All comfort must be built upon a scripture promise, else it is presumption, not true comfort. As faith is the life of a Christian, so the promises are the life of faith. Faith is a dead faith if it has no promise to quicken it. As the promises are of no use without faith, apply them. So faith, uh, sorry, without faith to apply them, so faith is of no use without a promise to lay hold on. We can carry on, verse 59 then, he says, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. So I'll read to you another quote, this is by a man called William Dunlop. He said, uh, the translation which is made in the text from the occasion of this alteration, so basically saying the contrast here of going from I thought on my ways to the change itself is very lofty and elegant. He does not tell us that after a review of them he saw the folly and danger of sin, the debasedness of its pleasures and the position, sorry, the poison of its delights, or that upon a search into God's law he was convinced that what he'd imagined to serve rigid and uh, frightful before was now all amenable and lovely. No, but immediately adds, I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Then, uh, than which I can conceive nothing more noble or strong. For it emphatically says that there was no need to express the appearance his ways had when once he thought upon them. What he's saying there is that we don't get a lot of detail about all the things he thought about. He said, I thought upon my ways, and it's almost as if there's a multitude in there that's unsaid. Because then the next line, or the next part of the, the sentence is, and I turned my feet and I, it, was, it was like an instant decision. And yet, in truth, it probably wasn't an instant decision. As he thought upon his ways, there was probably that mulling over and considering and being horrified. And it probably didn't take very long to come to that conclusion that we've got to do something here. You know, again, I think probably such a great gulf between his own ways and God's ways. You know, it's only the grace of God that can provide, in a sense, a way of going from our way to God's way. I was reminded of the, the account in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, and the rich man finds himself, of course, in Hades and he's in torment there. Oh, and he desperately wants to mend his ways, doesn't he, at that point? You know, he wants to benefit from the comfort that he now sees Lazarus enjoying. But by that time it's too late. And there's a great lesson because as 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, the day of salvation is now. You know, there is no kind of waiting, let's see what happens. As the psalmist stopped to consider his own ways, he realized the predicament he was in. You know, I guess you're trying to keep some of these rock climbing analogies and things. You know, it's as if you were going up a path and suddenly you realize that the ledge you're on is getting narrow and narrow and there is no way out. Well, that, that's what life in the world is like. That we carry on and suddenly we're going to come to a place where it'll end in disaster. You know, it's never too late to change our ways, providing we have breath. But it's never too soon to do so either. Another of Spurgeon's quotes, he says, the Hebrew word used here for thinking signifies to think on a man's ways accurately, advisedly, seriously, studiously, curiously. 
It said this holy man of God thought exactly and curiously on all his purposes and practices, on all his doings and sayings, on all his words and works, and finding too many of them to be short of the rule, yea, to be against the rule, he turned his feet to God's testimonies. You know, and, and if you and I were to do that, if we were to stop for a moment to think about the path that we've trod before, you know, we would come to that same conclusion, that there is no compatibility. I just notice here, though, I think it's interesting what we're told, because we're told that I thought on my ways, and notice what he says, and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Not I turned my heart unto thy testimonies, not I turned my mind. You know, the mind and the heart have to be involved, because that decision is made there. But it's his feet that do the the action here. And I think that's the point. It has to be an action. It's no good just having some theoretical understanding. This has to be a, a kind of a moment of decision where something is going to change in his life. You know, consider also that we're now 59 verses or so into this journey. You know, and a lot of grounds have been covered. And again, the word of God has been more and more permeating his thinking and hopefully our thinking as well. And yet he's only now arriving at this milestone, this moment of decision. You know, prior to this verse, he's already stated that he'd love God, he'd love God, God's commandments, that he sought his precepts and his statutes and testimonies and so on. And yet somehow he'd managed to continue along a path whilst observing God's path. And I think that's really interesting because I think that's probably the truth for so many Christians. That it's as if we've got what many perceive to be, almost say perceive, it's the, the problem is we don't perceive, but it's like a parallel path. You've got God's path and we have our path. God's way and our way. And for a lot of people, they don't realise that actually they need to be on God's path. And what happens over a period of time is that we start to move apart. Almost like train tracks that are separating, one going one direction, one going another. You know, and, and for a while, people can take comfort in seeing all the things that are going on on God's path, seeing the blessings and, and so on. Maybe they don't experience them. But it comes to a point that if we are quickened spiritually at all, we realize that our path is moving away from God, our own ways. And, you know, I, I make this point because we're not dealing here with somebody who is an unbeliever. This isn't a kind of a coming to that place of making a decision to follow Christ. This is somebody that was already seeking God, wanting to know more of God, and yet coming to a place in their life where they realized, even as a believer, they weren't walking on that path. And I think there's a real challenge for us because I think so many Christians, and maybe some of us here this morning, often find ourselves in that place where actually we are not on God's path. We might not be intentionally sinning. We might not be doing things that we would list as iniquity or whatever. But we're still not on God's path. We've still got our own agenda. We're still so wrapped up in our things. We're not seeking first the kingdom of God. You know, the danger, of course, is that if you live that way, you're living outside of the blessings that God has for you. You know, we need to take action with our feet. It's not something we can just have some head knowledge of. You know, we need to daily be turning to God's word. And if you're not daily turning to God's word, well, maybe you are still on your own path. If you're not devotedly coming before the Lord in prayer, and I love one of the things Officer Chambers said, uh, he said uh, something on the lines of that you know, he never prayed for an hour at a time, but he never went for more than an hour without praying. I love that. Because that's we, we can all do that. 
You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've, you've got to get up and spend an hour in prayer at the start of the day. If you can, great. But don't let an hour go by without praying, without communing, without speaking and talking to God. You know, if you go through your day and you, don't, you find yourself not praying, there's a strong possibility you're probably on your own path still. You might be right next to God's path. You might see the blessings. You still might be fellowshipping with people that are on that path. But you're missing out on God's best for you. In Acts chapter 2, in fact, just, just turn there because it's such an important scripture. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're given a list of the essentials of the church, of Christian life. This is speaking of the early church, the, the church in Jerusalem, just after they were on the day of Pentecost where you know, 3,000 souls have been added to their number. And we're told what happened. Uh, verse 42 says, and they continued steadfastly, I mean stuck to, number of things. The apostles' doctrine, okay, the word of God, and fellowship, and breaking of bread and in prayers. Those four things, the word of God, the apostles' doctrine, fellowshipping with each other, which we're told we should do more as we see the day approaching, not because of what we might learn, but because of what often we can give to others, how we can encourage others, in breaking bread, which we've done this morning, and in prayers. You know, they're the, the, the foundational things. And if any of those are kind of missing, then there's a chance that you're still on your own path. And I encourage you this morning to really consider your ways. You know, as um, we read a moment ago, Spurgeon highlighted what that word means. Uh, to, to think about the way you live your life, what you do with your time. Okay, to think accurately, advisedly, seriously, studiously, curiously. That's what the, the Hebrew word implies, think there. Uh, uh, it was one of the things I love about scripture. God forever encourages us to think. You know, the world thinks we are unthinking people, that we just go along with this religion thing, and, you know, it, it's just kind of a, a crutch for the weak. It's not that at all. But we are to think. God wants us. God says, come, let us reason together. And then note again that he turned his feet. That decision has been made. And faith without works is dead. It's no good having this understanding or this knowing what we should do. It's no good even maybe this morning feeling convicted that the Lord is calling you to, to lay aside something that's been troubling you or slowing you down. You know, if you were climbing up a rock face, you wouldn't be carrying baggage that you didn't need. You know, but we, we've got a much more noble ascent, a much greater reason to climb in our walk. Because we've got these blessings that God promises us. Again, that first two verses of the psalm. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. And again, blessed are they that keep his testimonies. These blessings are there. They're to be had. But if you're not in that path, if you're not in that way, you're not going to benefit from those blessings. Again, that, that path will separate. And if you've not already come to that place, then you will come to a place of decision. But there's no reason that can't be now. There's no reason that can't be this morning. Look what he says, verse 60, carrying on. In fact, just again, yeah, finish off verse 59. I thought of my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. It's getting back to God's word. You're not going to find the answers in your own ideas or whatever else. It's God's testimonies. And it really comes through reading God's word, allowing God's word to speak to you. Understanding what God has said, God's ways. The things that God has written for us, to instruct us. So verse 60, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. You know, there's this real sense of urgency now. Because we don't know how many breaths we have left. 
You know, life has a way of surprising all of us at times. And we don't know what God's plan is for any one of us. We can't afford to stay off God's path any longer. We need to get into this place. And why would we want to when God has promised us such a rich life of blessing? You know, it doesn't mean that we have a life that's free from any trial. And we've already seen the psalmist highlight these things. But within those trials, we'll have a comfort, we'll have a peace. So I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Now that, that's the appropriate response. You know, again, all of this, in a sense, is born out of that kind of setting off on this journey. We've had that respite, moving off in the journey, and then making that bold statement, Lord, I'm going to keep your words. It's like, uh-oh, how do I do that? Lord, and suddenly he starts to think about his own way. He thinks about his life as it is and realizes, I need grace, I need help, I need mercy. And he just appeals to God. And made house and delayed not to keep thy commandments. And again, that's not implying in his own strength. Uh, all the way through this, I've highlighted, this is not about making resolutions. This is about asking for God's grace and seeking him. And you know, all you need to do is turn to his word. Verse 61 carries on. In fact, sorry, let me just, uh, I was going to read a quote from verse 60 from Spurgeon. He said, he made all speed to get back into the royal road from which he had wandered and to run in that road upon the king's errands. Speed in repentance and speed in obedience are two excellent things. We are too often in haste to sin, although we may be in a greater hurry to obey. I love that. In fact, actually, before we go on to 61, I want to just read to you something. Let's just turn to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Because it's just a really great example of seeing a predicament and doing something about it. So, Second Chronicles and verse, sorry, chapter thirty-four, and we'll pick it up at verse fourteen. It's the account of Josiah, king of Israel. He was just eight years old uh, when he became king. He was a good king. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He sought God and and so on. He broke down the altars and the idols that were in the, the land. Really positive. And then he set about this work of repairing the house of the Lord, the temple of God in Jerusalem. And verse 14 picks us up and says, And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Now, seemingly up to this point, they lost it. They didn't have a copy of the law of Moses. They knew about it. Things have been passed down. But they didn't have a copy of the law. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants they did. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it to the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the law, that he rent his clothes. Okay, that's Josiah's version of, I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Suddenly he considered his ways. He's face to face with what God says, and he realizes this big gulf that exists between where he is and where God is. And so he rents his clothes. This has got to change as far as he's concerned. It says, and the king commanded Hilkiah and Achaim and the, uh, the son of Shaphan and um, Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan the scribe and Asiah, the servant of the king, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me 
And for them that are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. And he goes on. What a transformation then takes place in Jerusalem because of the king, because of the way he responds. Verse 31, we'll just conclude and then we'll come back to the psalm. But verse 31 of Second uh, Chronicles 34 says, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. You see, that, that's where the psalmist jumps from, you know, I considered my ways and then turned my feet. That section in the middle of suddenly realizing the predicament is really what we've got in the rest of this chapter in 34. But verse 31 says, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart. Don't these things mean a little bit more now as we've been going through Psalm 119? You read something like that, and it means a little bit more. It's a little bit more import as to, to exactly what was going on in the king's heart with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which were written in this book. And it goes on. That's the change. That's the change that God would have in every one of us, as we're brought face to face with our own ways, that we surrender them to him, and that we turn back to him, and we seek his path. Let's say, so verse 61, The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. Different translations have this slightly differently, but I like the way this puts it. Because, you know, because of sin, because of going down my own way, I've been robbed of innocence, I've been robbed of peace, I've been robbed of fellowship, I've been robbed of joy, I've been robbed of countless blessings, and we can make that list go on all morning. All the things that we've been robbed of. Things that should have been ours, that we could have had, but because we went our way, and the bands of the wicked. Psalms talks often about the wicked, you know, put your own name in there because it's talking about the flesh life very often. It's talking about that person we used to be and sometimes still are. Bands of the wicked have robbed me. You know, the way, and there, there are of course others in this world, there are people that we find that will, will try and take away from us things that, that God has given us, take away the blessings. There are people that will do what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? You know, and they'll try and take things away from us like that. But the biggest, the greatest enemy that we've got is self. That's the the greatest issue in terms of wickedness. And that's where we have lost so much in the past. But notice the conclusion of that verse. But I have not forgotten thy law. You know, through all the trials, through all the problems, David, again, psalmist here, has not forgotten, has not moved away, has not come to that place of absolutely forgetting about God. And now there's kind of a greater... Intensity, as it concludes these, these verses. Because it says, at midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee. If you look back into the previous verses, we find there in verse uh, 55, he says, I remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night. Of course, the night is when so often the world indulges in iniquity and so on. And it's good to be able to end our day thinking about God. If we can end our day thinking about God, then we can normally start our day thinking about God as well. But that, at that point, it was just in the night. It was just a general. Now it's gotten more intense, more specific. Verse 62 again, at midnight. He's specifically saying, I'm actually going to make an effort to rise and to give thanks unto God. 
You know, and it may be at a time of the night that other people in and around Jerusalem are getting involved in all sorts of things that maybe they shouldn't, just as it happens in our world today. But at midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. You know, and suddenly you realize how close to that line we have been living our lives and we've allowed our lives to become at times. And it's only God's grace, only his mercy, it's only the blood of Christ that has spared us from God's wrath and his judgments. As we looked in earlier, earlier on at Ephesians. We need to have those times, just like the psalmist here, where we can rise and give thanks unto the Lord. Moments of our day where we just are reminded and we stop, we just pause for a moment. Verse 63 says, I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. You know, and it might be a narrow way at times, it might seem sometimes lonely, but we've got some distinguished companions that have walked this path before us, and many that are walking it with us now. You know, we think of those in scripture that we can call our companions. Because he says here, I'm a companion of all them that feared. That means the likes of David, Abraham, Moses, Elisha, Elijah, Noah. You know, you start to think of all these individuals in scripture. People like Esther and Ruth. They're our companions. They've walked this path before us. Of course, people like the Apostle Paul and Timothy and all the disciples they're the ones that have gone before us and they, they kind of trod that path and we've just got to follow in their footsteps. You know, in Hebrews it talks about whose faith follow. Speaking of these people, great role models, great examples for us to follow after. But even now there's people around us that we can look to that can be our role models. It's always good to have somebody that kind of encourages you and, and, and motivates you and stirs you in the things of the Lord. I've got a number of people that are like that for me that I, I kind of go to and I, I I, I know they're going to ask me questions, personal questions about my spiritual walk with God. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that there's an accountability. And we should all be like that, wanting to share with others and grow with each other. We're walking together. Says, I'm a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. And then finally, the earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. Uh, this again so much of these uh, the comments about his statutes we, we read uh, and so often he comes uh, says the same thing it's almost a, a repetition but it almost builds every time as well you know just continually asking God to teach him back in verse 26 for, teach me thy statutes and uh, a number of others yeah, verse 12 again teach me thy statutes and, and a number of others there's about seven or eight I think in the psalm itself uh, where the psalmist says this. But again, the earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Th- this whole idea of mercy, that we have been spared God's wrath, and that mercy won't fail us. But we need to really make that that decision, that, that be consciously aware that there are two paths, and that we can either walk our path or walk God's path. And the difference between the two really is simply down to the word of God. Where does the word of God feature in your life? If the word of God has no place in your life, then you are almost certainly on your own path. If you're allowing the word of God to guide you, well then you're almost certainly on God's path. And you'll know when you're walking with God because you just have that communion, that fellowship, that relationship that just flourishes. And that's what the psalmist here is 
is pleading for himself. And this morning, I just encourage you, just think on your ways. And if you're not where you know you should be, then now is the time. Turn your feet under his testimonies. Make haste. Don't delay. You know, the blessings are immeasurable. The risk factor is too great to even consider. So it's just to bow our hearts. Father, as we just contemplate these things, as we struggle sometimes with our daily life, our routine, our walk, Father, we ask for your grace. Lord, we are so grateful as we read there that the earth is full of your mercy. Oh Lord, there is no shortage of your mercy. So let us avail ourselves of it. And Lord, give us also the grace that we need to get off our own path, to stop doing the things that we would naturally do and start doing the things that you would have us do, being led of your spirit. Father, your word makes it very clear that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, nor can he know them. So Lord, we don't want to live in that natural mindset. But the only way, Lord, is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to allow your word to change the way we think. So, Lord, give us a greater hunger for your word. Lord, just as the psalmist here in in these verses, saying that he would keep your word, Lord, that he knows that you would be merciful according to your word, that he would turn to your testimonies, to your commandments, for your law, your judgments, Lord, your precepts, all of these things. Help us to cherish and love your law, your word. And thereby grow, Lord. Just watch over us, I pray, over these days, this week to come. Keep us close to you, we pray. And keep us growing. Keep us walking in the way, in your way and not ours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.